Before turning to the passage this morning, I want to remind the congregation that a number of weeks back, we set aside Luke and focused one morning on the biblical call to family worship. And uh, most of you were here, some of you were not. And if you were not here, I would like to encourage you to go to sermonaudio.com or to our webpage and listen to the sermon on family worship. And for those who were here, uh, how's it going? Uh, That is to say, are we being obedient to God's Word and following through? Uh, So I want to keep it before us in a variety of ways from time to time and encourage family worship. And if you are at home with your wife and you have no children in the home, it is just as important as it has always been to take time every day in the Word and in prayer and singing God's praises with your wife. Now let's turn to Luke's Gospel as we continue our series through this Gospel, and we are now coming to the 12th chapter. Luke chapter 12, the first 12 verses. Will you bow with me in prayer? How thankful we are, Heavenly Father, for thy word. Thy word is truth. And we ask that heaven will be opened upon us this morning, that the Holy Spirit who has inspired this word will open our hearts to receive it, that there will be nothing cold nor calloused in the hearts of the people of God here, that we would not be backsliders, but that we would be constantly converted, moving ahead, believing, repenting every day, and that the preaching of the Word will be used in the hands of the Holy Spirit to bring that persevering grace that we so desperately need and depend upon upon Him for. We know that perseverance is promised to every true believer in Christ. We also know that means have been ordained from of old for our perseverance. Please use this Word proclaimed today. But Father, also for someone or ones who may be lost and undone, who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that this may be the day in which their hearts are opened as Lydia's of old to receive the word that is proclaimed. And these things we pray in the name of the only mediator between God and man, our Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Will you stand with your copy of God's word, Luke chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? 
why even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, people of God, I have a message in my heart from God for you, and it comes from this text. It is the most needed, perhaps, and most neglected truth in the church, the evangelical church of America today, and that message, of course, is the fear of God, which is directly addressed in this passage, but also is really found in places where you might not expect to find it in the passage that we have read this morning. Well, the crowd is immense that has gathered. Thousands have come to hear the Lord Jesus, perhaps see him as he would perform miracles. They're stepping on one another. And in their presence, Jesus instructs his disciples. And he begins by saying this. This is the first point. Hypocrites should fear the judgment to come. Now, that's found in verses 1 through 3. You see, he says, Uh, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private houses shall be proclaimed on housetops. And as he says this, notice in the end of verse 1 that it's in the context of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees which is hypocrisy. Now we've been dealing, or the Lord Jesus has been dealing in intense ways with the Pharisees over these last weeks and the passages that we have looked at together. And he is continuing to warn against hypocrisy, but he is warning his own disciples against hypocrisy. He has warned, of course, the Pharisees, but now he turns to his own disciples and he warns them against this leaven of the Pharisees. What a danger hypocrisy is, and worse in those who will be called to minister God's word, worse in them, which of course is why he addresses his disciples. Matthew Henry made the statement, Christ's disciples were, for aught we know, the best men in the world, yet they needed to be cautioned against hypocrisy. And remember that one of those disciples was Judas Iscariot, who certainly was a hypocrite. So he warns them against the leaven of the Pharisees. And you know what leaven is all about and how it's used in baking. Well, he says just as it leavens the whole lump of dough, so also it can take hold in a man's heart, this leaven of hypocrisy. It can spread throughout and it can spread thoroughly. It works secretly. It works silently. And that is how whole denominations are somehow uh, taken over Uh, in time by false doctrine. Uh, The false teachers don't come and say, we're teaching false teaching and we're leading our denomination that way. That's not how it happens. 
It's very secret, it's very silent, it's very slow moving, and then all of a sudden there's the denomination that has fallen into false teaching. But this also can happen, of course, in the hearts of individuals. Entire lives can be in this very slow, insidious way taken over by the attitude of the Pharisees, the leaven of hypocrisy. And so he warns against against this leaven. And remember the woes that he brought concerning the Pharisees that we saw last week for distorting God's law, pride and vanity, specifically for hypocrisy, adding to the burdens of needy sinners, pretending reverence for the prophets, and even barring the way to the kingdom of God. Well, that's how insidious error can be. Some of you who are readers of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress will remember that on one occasion, Christian and Hopeful looked down the the precipice from the hill error, and they see all of these bodies that have been dashed to pieces in that allegory because of false teaching. So he says you need to beware of that false teaching. It works like a leaven, and ultimately it is hypocritical. And he says this is what hypocrites need to know. Hypocrites need to know that judgment is coming. For he says in verse 2, nothing is covered that shall not be revealed. And in verse 3, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever, uh, what has been whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed in housetops. Hypocrites need to know that the judgment is coming. It's no use to cover up the things in the heart, and those things that are said in secret, that are contrary to what you're professing and what you confess, they will be made known. He assures us of that. Sometimes they will be made known in this life. You say something contrary to your profession, others hear it, it gets around, but for sure in the life to come. Ecclesiastes 12, 14, for God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Romans 2, 16, Paul says, in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. And so do you see the reason for our Old Testament reading this morning with Belshazzar? There he is, that, that ungodly man, and the secrets of his heart are being exposed by this writing of a man's hand on the wall. Meaning, meaning, tikal, you farsen, you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Well, something like that, except much more profound, is going to happen on the day of judgment. Imagine this morning if there was a hand that began to write up here in visible letters the sins of your pastor. Well, I would be thoroughly ashamed. And I would imagine you would too. The day is coming, he's saying to the hypocrite, in which all of your sins are going to be made known. Nothing can be hidden. You can know that for sure. God in his infinite power and in his infinite justice is going to make known everything that you have done and all that you have said that is contrary to your profession, you hypocrite. And of course, he's speaking of unbelievers. So at this point, usually questions come up in believers' minds, and they ask, will believers give an account at the judgment? Well, let me remind you that Paul speaks to believers when he says in 2 Corinthians 5 that we will all give an account for deeds done in the body. Uh, I, as a minister, am told in Hebrews 13, 17, that I will give an account 
for my ministry that I offer to the people of God here and elsewhere. But you see, my sins as a believer will be brought forward to glorify Christ in his redemption as forgiven in his blood. My sins will not be remembered against me as his child, but will manifest the mercy of Christ and the completeness of Christ's sacrifice. And this should not dampen the prevailing attitude that should fill the believer's heart as we think of the judgment to come, which is an attitude of joy. 2 Timothy 4.8, we are to love Christ's appearing. 1 Thessalonians 4, we are to comfort one another with words regarding the return of Jesus Christ. Uh, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, not now, there will not be then. We will not be condemned because Christ has borne our condemnation for us on the cross. But do not miss the point of Jesus' words in this passage. The point is they stand as warnings not to be found contrary to that which we profess. Hypocrites rather than believers. And so for the hypocrite, there should be fear in his heart. Every thought, every word, every deed of every day of every hour, of every minute, of every second, will be brought to the judgment. And the ungodly should really fear the judgment to come. But in their hypocrisy and the hardness of their hearts, they may have moments of palpitation within the heart, but they don't fear the judgment of God. That's the whole problem. They don't fear God at all. Malachi 4.1, For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And that day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, and it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Then shall they say, Revelation 6, to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall stand. And so the message of Jesus essentially is, if you are careless and comfortable in your sin now, you will not be on that day. No unrepentant sinner will stand on that day. No hypocrite will remain unmasked on that day. And so how will you fare? How will I fare? Are you ready for that day? Uh, Do you trust in Christ alone for your redemption? Someone says, well, I'll just run away. I'll just flee. To where will you flee? You're you're fleeing from Jesus Christ, God, who in the flesh uh, died for sinners and you have rejected, and he will bring judgment on that day. And John Murray, professor of systematic theology at Old Westminster Seminary, John Murray said, it is of the essence of impiety not to be afraid of God when there is a reason to be afraid. Let me read that again. It is of the essence of impiety not to be afraid of God when there is reason to be afraid. Why do we resist the thought of God's wrath? 
Why do we try to suppress the conviction of its reality? Is it not because we do not wish to entertain the terror which the conviction involves and we do not wish to be placed under the necessity of fashioning thought and life in terms of its reality? Uh, Professor Murray is just so right. Oh, may the Lord use his word to expose the secrets of your hearts now before it is too late. The thing about hypocrisy is the hypocrite thinks he's hiding everything, but not only does the Lord see, but discerning godly people see it too. And you know what? Children see it. I think it's important for me simply to ask the question, what do your children see when they see you? I'm not saying perfection, but do they see Christ, commitment to Christ? May they not see hypocrisy. Well, let me tell you, there's a progression here. The Lord Jesus points out that hypocrites are going to be judged, but now, contrary to the way the Pharisees live, he says, secondly, believers are called to live in the fear of God. Believers are called to live in the fear of God. Look with me again at verses 4 through 7. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. Obviously, he is speaking to his disciples still. He's speaking to us as believers this morning. Do believers then fear God? Well, not coming condemnation because we will not be condemned. That's been dealt with. There is none. Perfect love casts out all fear uh, so far as that is concerned. But yes, there is an appropriate fear of God in the believer's heart. And we have largely forgotten this, and it is no longer stressed by and large in our churches, no longer stressed in Christian living, and we are suffering for it. Let me tell you, there is an appropriate fear of God in the believer's heart. Now, I remember a number of years ago talking with a youth group in which there were questions that were being asked of me. And I'm sure Jeff can, can say that he's seen this as well. The questions that came to me, at least, at least from some, this was a long, long time ago, the questions that, that came were, were questions that I can summarize this way. How close can I get to sin and not sin? It's not just young people that ask that question, is it? How close can I get? Pastor, can I do this and not sin? But the point is, the believer wants to get as far away from sin as he can. That's the attitude of the believer's heart. One minister that Vicki and I are very thankful for had uh, daughters. Uh, had sons too, but he had daughters. And I'm just giving this as an illustration. I'm, there are many others that could be given. So <clears throat> one of the things that happens evidently when you raise daughters, I didn't have daughters, I have lots of daughters, but I didn't have them in my home, is that sometimes you have to talk with your daughter about what she wears. 
And the way this minister handled it with his Christian daughter, believing daughter, she would come and they would have discussions sometime and he would say, look, if you can go in your room and get on your knees and plead for God to bless what you're wearing, you can wear it. Now that's good counsel, isn't it? Because that helped the young lady to develop on her own a sense of the fear of God. Well, Jesus' followers are called to live in the fear of God. Our God is holy. God's people who know the Lord know him to be holy. And so the contrast, don't fear men, but fear God. God can destroy in hell. Men can only destroy the body. And so his point is the same as that of Paul in Galatians 1 verse 10, in which he says, you cannot be servants of God if you are seeking to be pleasers of men. Now, all of us need to learn this, but ministers have a particular need to learn this. And he wants his friends, he calls them friends in verse 4, he wants his friends to know this, have holy resolve and do not be afraid of men, but be like John Knox who did not fear the face of clay. One writer says, those whom Christ owns for his friends need not be afraid of any enemies. Only those risen from Christ, of course, can live in that way, risen in him. And he wants us to know that our ministries and our Christian lives will be one of suffering. He tells us that. He has not told us that we will not suffer. He has told us explicitly that true believers will suffer in this world. But he says in the midst of it, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you the one to fear. Fear the holy God who is almighty and who can cast the sinner into hell. Fear him rather than men. Now, are you struggling with that? Are you seeking to be a man pleaser in everything you do? That is to say, you're more concerned with what men think about you than what God thinks about you or your decisions or what you're doing in life or whatever it may be. You know, some have denied Christ like Peter, and they've repented and they've shown themselves to be the Lord's afterward and more courageous than before their failure. But others have denied Christ and have shown that they have never known him. And the state of the wicked after death is not annihilation, it is hell. J.C. Ryle said, Thousands would never hesitate a moment to storm a breach or face a lion who dare not face the laughter of relatives, neighbors, and friends. So, yes, yes, he's absolutely right. There are those who would do great, courageous things, but they can't bear the laughter of others or to disappoint people. So how will we be ready if we must go to prison or die violent deaths? If we are not now living in the fear of God in the small things of life. John Knox said, fear God, fear sin, and fear nothing else. Fear God, fear sin, and fear nothing else. Now I want to speak specially for a few moments to young men in our congregation who may be Uh, now or at some point called to preach. I may be speaking to some nine-year-old boy this morning who may be called to preach later in life, or I may be talking with a 20-year-old 
who is called to preach. Don't we hope that there will be men called from our congregation that will be preachers of the gospel? I certainly do. I pray for that. And here's what I want to say to you. You can expect, if you go into the ministry, to live with criticism. You can expect it. You will live with criticism. Now, some of that criticism is good. It's, it's, it's kind, it's generous, it's, it's helpful, it's loving. I'm not talking about that. <laughs> Jesus is being criticized here, all through here, by the Pharisees. And they're, they're going to criticize him. They're going to hound him to death, literally, with criticism. And sometimes it is very, very severe. So, young man, I want you to know right now, if you go into the ministry, you can just count on it. You're going to live with criticism. So you need to prepare for it now uh, by living in the fear of God and being willing for your friends to put you down or to laugh at you or to criticize you. Just know that that's going to be your life. But here's the point. When you are called to the ministry of the Word, let nothing stop you. Just keep doing what God has called you to do. And illustrations abound. I was thinking of Joseph Aline, who was um, imprisoned for preaching after 1662. And uh, rather than shut up when they put him in the prison, he preached outside to those outside through the prison bars. He wouldn't stop preaching. Uh, or I was thinking of Nathaniel Vincent, who was dragged by the hair from his pulpit through the streets and continued preaching all the way, and he wrote a great book on love. He continued to love. Uh, Isn't that a marvelous testimony? Uh, So if the day comes, one of these days, and my head is chopped off for preaching the gospel, and it's put on a silver platter, no, they wouldn't put it on silver, they put mine on some plain old platter, um, then I hope my jaws just keep preaching, (laughs) you know, when they take it to whoever the hair it is that cut my head off. Uh, The point is, no matter the criticism, no matter the persecution, you just keep doing what the Lord has called you to do. So our Lord also brings the encouragement here of divine providence. We see it in verses 6 and 7, because this is very precious. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many Uh, sparrows. And what will put steel into your backbone in the face of difficulty, but the truth that God and his providence rules and overrules and governs and brings about his perfect will for you, no matter what the circumstance or persecution may be. And this is such a precious truth and so needed that I'm going to say very little about it this morning. And next week, Lord willing, if God gives me breath, we're going to look at verses six and seven by themselves, the providence of God. We'll come back to that next week. That that doesn't mean we're done with the sermon, by the way. So he next calls us. Now see the progression here, all right? The hypocrites need to know they're going to judgment. You need to live in the fear of God as believers. And if you really do fear God, this is the third point. God fears confess Christ. God fears confess Christ, verses 8 through 10. Let's read them. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, also will acknowledge before the angels of God, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or 
what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. A number of the commentators on this passage point to Bishop Hooper, who, when he was being, um, uh, right before being burned at the stake, one of his Roman Catholic persecutors urged him to save his life, and this is what he said, life is sweet and death is bitter, but eternal life is more sweet and eternal death is more bitter. Now that's the right attitude. You will be acknowledged by Christ in the day of judgment according as you have acknowledged him. Now, that's not a work of righteousness that you do. It is an evidence of the grace of God in your heart. So, verse 9, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God, is best understood against the backdrop of Revelation 14, around verse 10, that speaks of the unbeliever as being tormented in the presence of the Lamb. In the presence of the Lamb. This sin of denying Christ can be forgiven. He says so. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But he goes on to say that there is a sin that will not be forgiven. There's a kind of hardness that crosses the line. Uh, The heart is so hard that it blasphemes the Holy Spirit. And that shall not be forgiven. The Pharisees have been attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan. Some of them have probably crossed the line. Some are close to crossing the line. Uh, It's a self-conscious denial of the Holy Spirit's work, self-consciously denying the truth to be true, the light to be shining. No believer can commit this sin. Let me tell you something. If If you are an unbeliever here this morning and you've heard the gospel over and over and over, you really need to beware. Because what is being spoken here of here is the final, the final impenitence. J.C. Ryle said, It is a sin into which it may be feared many constant hearers of the gospel nowadays fall by determined clinging to the world. And worst of all, it is a sin which is commonly accompanied by utter deadness, hardness, and insensibility of heart. The man who sins will... Well, the man whose sins will not be forgiven is precisely the man who will never seek to have them forgiven. He will not seek to be pardoned. He is gospel-hardened and twice dead. His conscience is seared with a hot iron. And oh, how I pray that no one here uh, will be found guilty of this ultimate impenitence and hardness of heart. So confessing Christ shows that we fear the Lord. You see that, don't you? It's clear. Confessing Christ. Young people, let me ask you the question, are you afraid to confess Christ? If you're not, then that's so wonderful, and I I encourage you to grow in your commitment to stand uh, for Christ. But if the answer is yes, I, I am ashamed. Let me ask you why. Why are you ashamed to confess Christ? Do you know the Lord? Why would you be ashamed of him who died for sinners? Do you believe that he is your Savior? Uh, do you fear men rather than God? 
The call to confess Christ is not just for ministers. It's not just for elders. It's not just for deacons. It's not just for martyrs who are burned at the stake. The call to confess Christ is for every believer, no matter who you are or what your age may be. And if you love the Lord, you should not be afraid to let people know it. And if we confess him not before men, he will not confess us before his Father in heaven. Paul the Apostle said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Are you ashamed of the gospel? Young people, let me remind you of an illustration I've used before, because some of you probably weren't born. Um, You're not young people anymore. Um, But some of you young people, um, well, in any case, I didn't say that right, did I? But... (laughs) Do you remember that illustration that I brought to you? I actually heard it from, um, from um, it, was, it was a Baptist minister who told, who told it, well-known Baptist minister. There were, there, there were a lot of people that were gathered around an infidel who had taken the soapbox and he was denying Christ. And all these people were standing around listening. No one was challenging him. Probably a lot of Christians standing around him. And so the infidel, uh, in his vitriolic way, said, is there, is there no one here that would debate me? And, and there were some teenage girls there, three of them, as I recall, and they said, well, we, we don't know how to debate, but we know how to sing. And they stood up on the soapbox, must have been a big soapbox, and they stood on the soapbox and they began to sing, stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. Lift high his royal banner, it must not suffer loss. From victory unto victory his army shall he lead, till every foe is vanquished, and Christ is Lord indeed. And we are told that the entire crowd was subdued and softened by the courageous witness of these three teenage girls. You don't have to be able to debate the infidel. Just confess Christ. Just confess Christ. Now, the next words of Jesus are especially encouraging to ministers of the Word, encouraging to us all, but especially to ministers of the Word. And um, this is your fourth point, the Lord's provision for God-fearers, verses 11 and 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to to say. One of the Puritans said, the faithful martyr for Christ has not only sufferings to undergo, but a testimony to bear, a good confession to witness, and is concerned to do that well, so that the cause of Christ may not suffer, though he suffer for it, and if this be his care, let him cast it upon God. So if you're brought before rulers and magistrates as Uh, Pastor Brunson in Turkey uh, right now, who has been uh, falsely charged, uh, is being brought and will be brought. Uh, If you have a heart that is filled with Christ and your aim is to serve your master and the Holy Spirit, he will enable you to bear a true and faithful witness. It may be that here there's some reference also to divine inspiration with the disciples and the apostles, but the point is, I think, uh, the Lord will enable you to be faithful no matter what circumstances you find yourself in as you confess Christ. 
What are the motives for that faithfulness? Let me give you two. There are two motives for faithfulness in witness-bearing and confessing Christ, two. The first one you know, it's the glory of God. The glory of God means more to me than me. Remember I said to you a couple of weeks ago when we sang a wonderful hymn that was written by Gerhardt, who had lost three of his children and had lost his wife and had been kicked out of his pastorate and wrote that wonderful hymn uh, that we sang together about, about joyful suffering. You can suffer in one of two ways. You can suffer to the glory of God or you can suffer in a self-centered way. Now, what God is saying here is you need to suffer to the glory of, of my name. Uh, when you come before these magistrates, I will enable you to say what needs to be said. Just keep my glory first and foremost. Keep the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge, before you, and you will be fine. That is to say, in terms of witnessing, you will witness faithfully. So that's first, the glory of God. But there's another reason for faithful witness bearing in whatever circumstance, and that is, well, let me use the words of of Horatius Bonar, one of our Scottish worthies. He says, the loss of even one soul is terrible beyond conception. The loss of even one soul is terrible beyond conception. And then he says, what a mystery. The soul and eternity of one man depends upon the voice of another. The motive for faithful witness bearing under the glory of God is the eternal destiny of sinners. Because God has ordained the use of the preached word and witness bearing to save sinners. Well, let me bring three conclusions for us. The first is this there are two kinds of fear. There is fear of judgment and condemnation, and he says hypocrites need to know about it because they should fear it. But there also is an appropriate believing fear. It's a fear of offending God, a reverence and awe for his name that is wholly compatible with love and actually essential to it. Because true piety, as Calvin said, is the, is the mingling of the fear of God and, the, and love. That's what true piety is. So there are two kinds of fear. Which do you know? And if you are an unbeliever, this is my second application, that text in Romans 1, there is no fear of God before their eyes, keeps coming to me recently. And the most dreadful judgment is the judicial hardening of a sinner's heart, the heart that rejects, that rejects, that rejects, And three times we read in Romans 1, and God gave them over, and God gave them over, and God gave them over. So that the judgment on hardening your heart is additional hardening of heart. John 12, 39, therefore they could not believe because that Isaiah said, he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts that they should not see with their eyes, nor understood with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. So if you are an unbeliever this morning, you are warned and you are called by the gospel minister. Do not harden your heart, but come to Christ. 
Thomas Watson said, the heart and sin are like two lovers who cannot endure being parted. A hard heart is like the anvil on which the hammer of God's justice will be striking to all eternity. Do not harden your heart. And then believer, the fear of the Lord, that is gospel fear, is found in two things. Are you listening? Gospel fear is found in two things, two ways. And here they are. Gospel fear is first found in our trembling at God's word. Isaiah 66, 2, to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. That's the attitude that says, oh, how I fear not living for God. How I fear not not believing his word. How I fear not trusting his promise. How I fear going against what he has revealed. How I fear not glorifying his name. How I fear for his glory because he is great and because he has saved me. How I fear to fail to live by the word of God. And for some of you, I have to ask, where's the fire? Where's the passion for this? Where is it? Where's the fire? Where's the passion to live this way? And again, I ask you, what do our children see? Do they see more enthusiasm and excitement about the next football game or whatever it may be than they do about Christ and living for him? What's first in your life? For whom? For what? Do you have passion Do you tremble at the word of God? But there's a second thing that characterizes those who are God-fearers, believers that fear God, and it is this. It is a tender heart. Okay? It's a tender and teachable heart. A heart that doesn't open the door to sin, that doesn't allow the heart to grow cold, that's careful not to offend God, that immediately yields to God, that mourns for sin, that rejoices in forgiveness, that delights to be alone with the Lord, that delights in public worship, that delights to have my heart worked on by the preaching of the word, that avoids the company that hardens the heart. I call upon every Christian here to keep a reverent, tender heart. In Vespers this last Wednesday, I gave an illustration at the end of the sermon I want to repeat here this morning. And it was a minister that I have, for whom I have great respect. It's actually my wife that brought this illustration to, to my attention. Um, he had a, 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 he was about to leave for a conference and he received a phone call from one of his elders, actually. And the elder said, I've got, to, I've got to see you right away. I've got to come over. We've got to talk. And uh, this minister said, I, I can't talk with you right now. I, I, I'm, I've got to go to the airport, catch a flight. I have a conference. I'm preaching for three days. I'll be back. Uh, what's the problem? He said, well, I, my, my life's just a mess. It's an abomination. My, I can't seem to have devotions. I can't seem to, to spend time with the Lord and and." and So this minister said to him, look, I've got to catch this plane. I will call you immediately when I return, but here's what I'd like for you to do while I'm gone. Just 
Every day, every day, 10 minutes in the Word, 10 minutes in prayer, 10 minutes in meditation. I'm all, all I'm asking for, 10 minutes in each of these. Will you do that? Oh, it's an abomination. He said, it'll be a greater abomination if you don't. So he had to fly off to his conference, concerned about his elder. When he came back, there was a note on his chair that said, you don't have to call so-and-so, all is well with his soul. Do you know why all was well is with his soul? Because he got into the word, he got into prayer, he got into meditation, and he returned to communing with his God. If you fail to apply yourselves to the means of grace, your heart will grow cold. And you will fall into that dark hole of backsliding, ugly, ugly hole. But if you will open your heart every day to the word read, to prayer, to meditation, to faithful attendance upon the means of grace that he has ordained, the worship of his name, if you will do that with passion, with heart and soul, you will keep a tender heart. And you will be one who fears the Lord. Will you do that? I hope you're answering in your hearts. Will you do that? And God's people said, Amen.